The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, so there's like a mountain of documentary evidence to begin with. There's also a question of, there are all of these documents, but how can you really convey what had happened? How can you really convey what had happened? And so witnesses are brought in, but it's also decided to use film evidence. And part of why they have this film evidence is because there had been cameramen that had been embedded with troops, right, during the war. And so there were filmmakers on that had filmed the liberation of the concentration camps. The Americans and the British had film footage and the Soviets had film footage as well. So the U.S. presents the the first film. They present it pretty early on. The trial starts on November 20th. And on November 29th, the U.S. prosecution presents a film about the Nazi concentration camps in the the zones that had been liberated by Western forces, places like um, Bergen-Belsen and Buchenwald. And it's it's incredibly powerful for those in the courtroom to actually visualize, to, to see what this looked like. Because again, there are some things that you just... You can't convey it in documents the same way that you can with images. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 26th, 2021. Last month marked the 75th anniversary of the end of the Nuremberg Trials. To better understand the trials and their legacy, I sat down with Francine Hirsch, Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Hirsch is the author of the new book, Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II. We covered a range of topics, including the Nuremberg trial from the Soviet perspective and the trial's legacy 75 years later. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Friday, November 26th, the Soviet perspective on the Nuremberg trials. Let's jump right into it. Why did you decide to write a book on the Soviet contribution to the Nuremberg trials? So first of all, so my book is about the, the first of the Nuremberg trials, right? And that was the only four power one. That was the Nuremberg trials that took place from um, November 1945 to October 1946 at the Palace of Justice in occupied Germany. And um, and in some ways, the book, the, the projects, I think like for many people um, working on, on a new project, it kind of had a serendipitous start. 
that um, I had discovered that the filmmaker Roman Carmen, who was someone that I had been interested in, that he had been at the Nuremberg trials, filmed the Nuremberg trials. Um, I discovered his documentary film about it. And I also had discovered that the Soviet lawyer, Aaron Chayinen, who's also someone I had been interested in from an earlier project had been at Nuremberg as well. And all of this sparked my curiosity because I, I really didn't know very much about the role of the Soviet Union at Nuremberg. I had really, you know, I'd seen the films, read the memoirs, and a lot of the time we really get this version of this like American story. And I, and I realized like how little was actually known. So that's what, what got me going with it. But it was really my first visit to the Moscow archives in the summer of 2005 that like uh, that, that was at that point I was sure that, that this is what I wanted to work on because the archival materials were absolutely fascinating. So for some of our listeners who might not be fully up on their Nuremberg history, I was wondering if you could just give us sort of an overview. Why did the, the, the four powers decide to even hold a trial and who was on trial? Right. So this, of course, is the Nuremberg trials take place in the wake of the Second World War. The United States, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, the four major allied powers, they tried 22 former Nazi leaders, um, people like Hermann Goering, Rudolf Hess, Johann von Ribbentrop, Wilhelm Keitel, and they tried them for conspiracy, crimes against peace, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. They also tried six Nazi organizations, including the Gestapo and the SS. And just to be clear from the start, that this is a trial just of the European Axis powers. And so those are the ones who were on trial. And in terms of why they decided to hold a trial, this is, for me, was a really interesting um, part of my research, was coming to understand just how important the Soviet Union was for making the Nuremberg trials happen. In the middle of the war, really in the, in the darkest days of the war, um, when victory is not yet in sight, the Soviets were out there pushing for what they called at the time a special international tribunal. And they were motivated by really the devastation of the German occupation of their country and also by thoughts of reparations. It was in October 1942 that Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov called for this tribunal and invited all interested governments to cooperate. And he, you know, he says we should cooperate in bringing Hitler, Goering, Hess, and other Nazi leaders to justice. And the Americans and the British at the time were, were pretty slow to come on board. The British argued that Nazi crimes were far too serious for a trial, and if anything were to be done after the war, that it should be some kind of punishment by executive decree. And the Americans, um, remember, this is during the war. They were worried about reprisals against allied prisoners of war. So it, it's really towards the end of the war, when victory is in sight, that the Americans and eventually the British come around to the idea, and then France is brought on board as well. And then once plans are made, then um, the different powers involved have different ideas about what Nuremberg should look like and different aspirations for really what the trial should be about. I mean, they're all clear that they want to bring, they want a trial, they want to bring the, the Nazi war criminals to justice. But in terms of what that should look like, that's where they differ. Let's jump into the, to the Soviet delegation. Who, who was in that delegation and what had their background been within the Soviet Union and, and the broader Soviet government? Yeah, I love talking about the members of the Soviet delegation to Nuremberg, in part because um, in so many of the, the wonderful films and memoirs that we have, we don't really have much attention to them at all. 
And so when we talk about the Soviet delegation, we're in part talking about the Soviet legal team. We're talking about the prosecutors, like Soviet chief prosecutor Roman Rudenko. We're talking about the Soviet judge, Yona Nikachenko, and their assistant prosecutors and the alternate judge at all. And one of the things that I think it's really important to keep in mind about the members of the Soviet delegation is that they were practically all of them involved in one way or another in the Soviet Union show trials of the 1930s, including the Moscow trials of 1936 to 1938. And these were trials that Stalin had used in the 1930s to take down his political enemies. So the fact that Stalin, when putting together a delegation for Nuremberg, decided to send people with this kind of show trial experience um, who were you know, very good at public speeches, who were very good at a certain kind of propaganda. I think this gives us a sense of, of what Stalin had in mind. The press corps, though, it also included like, amazingly talented writers, filmmakers, artists from the Soviet Union, people like um, the political cartoonist Boris Efimov, the playwright Vysyevolodyshnevsky, the filmmaker Roman Karman. And I was very interested in their stories as well. In the research that I did in, in the Moscow archives, in, I got to look at diaries and, and letters and just have a sense of what their experiences of Nuremberg were like. The delegation also included translators, interpreters, you know, typists, stenographers, and also some secret police agents who are really important to the Soviet team. And, and then there were also people like other lawyers, like who were legal advisors, like the Soviet lawyer Aaron Trainin, who Trainin played a really important role behind the scenes in terms of helping to develop um, certain legal categories that then became important to the trials. One more thing I'll add as well, um, because we have the Soviet delegation that's in Nuremberg, but there's also a secret Soviet team back in Moscow. In fact, Stalin had put together two secret commissions um, whose job it was to kind of keep tabs on the Soviet delegation in Nuremberg and try to influence things from afar. And um, one of the main Soviet Nuremberg commissions, the secret commission, was led by Andrei Vyshinsky, who was the Soviet Union's deputy foreign minister at the time, but who also had been the Soviet Union's procurator general in the 1930s and who had prosecuted the Moscow trials. So that's that I think is key as well in terms of, again, getting a sense of who the Soviets sent, what their experiences were and, um, and what Stalin's understanding was for what this trial would be like. So, so before we jump into, uh, I want to talk about Aaron Trainin's contribution to, to international law scholarship. Before we get into that, I want to touch on something you just said, which was how focused Stalin was on these trials. Why was that? Why was he so focused on this? Well, Stalin was focused on a lot of things, right? In part, that is how the Soviet Union was run, right? It was a highly centralized state, and um, many of the decisions would be made at the top. So it wasn't just about, it wasn't just the Nuremberg trials, but in general, when the Soviet Union sent people abroad, and this, again, the Nuremberg trials was a new kind of experience for the Soviet Union, but there was this idea that decisions would be made, you know, back in the Kremlin. And so the Soviet delegation is sending back a constant flow of information and stalling on making decisions in Nuremberg until it gets approval. And so the, so the Soviets are sending back through secret channels, actually usually via Berlin, right? And then to Moscow, all kinds of information. Um, Vyshinsky gets it. 
circulates it among the other members of that secret commission. And then it goes further up the chain of command to, to Molotov, the foreign minister, and sometimes to Stalin himself. And so Stalin is keeping um, a very close eye on things and, and was involved from the trial really all the way through. Let's let's talk about Aaron Trainin's contribution to, to the International Law Scholarship at that point. What was his main contribution to the Nuremberg trials? Right. So I talk in the law uh, quite a bit in the book about Aaron Trainin, who was a Soviet lawyer, a, a Jewish lawyer. He was from Vitebsk in the Pale of Settlement. Trainin got a law degree at Moscow University before the revolution. And then after 1917, he never joins the Communist Party, but he's very concerned about social justice. And he actually loyally serves the Bolsheviks. He believes with some of their ideals. And he gets to know, he got to know um, in the 1920s and the 1930s, Andrei Vyshinsky, because Vyshinsky had also for a time been at Moscow University. And Vyshinsky asked Trainin to to kind of in the 1930s to to think about questions of of international law. And so trying to really reinvent himself as an international law expert. And during the war, early in the war, as a member of the Soviet Union's Institute of Law, Trianin helps prepare a report for the Soviet Union's Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the question of of reparations, like what does international law have to say about reparations? And also they ask him to study the question of like what is the criminal responsibility of the leaders of a state for war crimes? And so China writes a really interesting report that I got to read drafts of in the archives. And the report gets turned into a book by the Soviet government. It's called The Criminal Responsibility of the Hitlerites. And in this report and then in this book, Trainin makes a number of really important arguments that go on to, to influence just the, the whole legal structure of, of Nuremberg in key ways. So he argues that the planning and waging of wars of aggression, wars of conquest, should be punished as crimes against peace. And Trainin coins this term, crimes against peace. He also argues that Nazi leaders could and should be tried for participating in a criminal conspiracy. And he challenges the defense of just following orders, right? The defense of superior orders. So this book, it makes its way um, out of the Soviet Union, across Europe to London, where it's translated into English and discussed by the members of the United Nations War Crimes Commission, which is a which is precedes it's not it's not the same as the United Nations. It's a big war crimes commission that the Soviet Union is actually not a member of. The book then crosses the Atlantic to the United States where it lands at the War Department's Special Projects Branch, and then ultimately at the White House. So what's key here is that Trainin was not the only lawyer at the time making an argument about the criminality of aggressive war, but many European and American lawyers were uneasy about this idea of the criminality of, of war. They thought that this was ex post facto or retroactive law. And the Soviets, they had they had no reservations about this. And so, you know, eventually the Soviets end up sending Trainin as one of their two representatives to the, the, the London conference in the summer of 1945, where um, representatives from the Soviet Union, France, United States and Great Britain put together the London Agreement and the Nuremberg Charter. And this concept of crimes against peace becomes one of the, the three categories of crimes set out in Article 6, along with war crimes and crimes against humanity. I want to talk about the mechanics of the trial itself and something that you, you 
illustrate in the book and, and speak about it, at, write about at length, is that the Soviets were really short on translators. Why, mm-hmm. why was that? And, and how did that affect their performance throughout the trial? Yeah, this ends up being a, a huge deal. And, and again, in the course of my research, it was something that surprised me at first. Just how many of these like urgent telegrams are being sent back to Moscow, first from, you know, from London and Berlin, where they're working on key documents, and then from Nuremberg itself, with the Soviets complaining that they don't have enough translators and that they don't have enough skilled interpreters. And kind of what I sort of determined was that part of the reason for the shortage really had to do with the politics of Stalinism going back to the 1930s, right? In the 1930s, at the time of the Great Terror, at the time of of the purge trials, people with foreign language expertise and people who knew German in particular were seen as suspect. It was hard to be trained in foreign languages at that time, and people who knew them were um, were sometimes arrested or shot. During the Nuremberg trials itself, it was difficult for the Soviets to get the NKVD, the the security apparatus in the Soviet Union, to approve people who knew foreign languages for travel abroad. And so the NKVD um, approves some people who are actually already working with some of the defendants, with some of the, the prisoners of war in the Soviet Union. And so they, they send over some people, like for one of the defendants, like Eric Rader, for example, there was like a, a translator who worked with him who this then gets sent over to Nuremberg to help out. But it's it's hard to it's hard for them to get through that screening process. And the other thing I want to say is that part of the translator and interpreter issue for the Soviets, in some ways, it, it also has to do with a misunderstanding, we can call it, with the United States, because initially it was understood that the United States, remember the Nuremberg trials is being held in, in, the Uni- in the US zone, in the American zone of occupied Germany. And the United States is providing a lot of the, kind of the, the technical setup for things. And the Soviets, as well as the French, thought that initially the United States was going to be supplying more translators and more interpreters than they ended up being able to do so. so the Soviets are scrambling to try to fill in the gap. The French are scrambling to fill in the gap as well. But the French are able to, to, to fill in and send more interpreters and translators more easily because they don't have the same kinds of constraints as the Soviets. It becomes a huge problem for the Soviet Union because there, there are so many documents. They're just not able to get through the huge piles of documents. There's also just issues because of not being able to keep up all the time and as well with some of the translation and not even the translation, the interpretation rather in the courtroom, but even outside of the courtroom in some of the smaller meetings. And so that that leaves them frequently a step behind. So the indictment, walk us through the, the charges that they sort of lay out there and in what subjects were the Soviets either trying to intentionally put in to the indictment or keep out that could have potentially sort of made them look bad? Yeah. So, so the indictment. So this is um, this is a huge thing. So the, the indictment is when we think about the indictment for a case, right? We're ta- thinking about all of the the charges being laid out, and in this particular case, the indictment it's a huge document. It's really the size of a novella, and it sets out the charges, and it also tells a story about the lead up to the war and the causes of the war. So the indictment, it outlines the main categories of crime. So we have, um, you know, as we as I mentioned earlier, those crimes set out in Article 6, which, you know, crimes against peace, 
war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Conspiracy is also added into the indictment. The Americans pushed for that. And the conspiracy charge is set out as, um, as, as charge number one. So there's four main categories of charges. So the, it lays out the main, the main charges and then lots of like, sub-crimes under each crime. And, um, and again, this, this story of, of what had happened. This becomes really important, and then not just for the Soviets, really, but for all of the countries of the prosecution. Because a question that everybody has is, what caused the war? And what could have been done to stop the war? And so questions rise about just the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, right? Which is, this is the Soviet-German non-aggression pact of August 1939. And how much did Stalin's pact with Hitler, and we're not even talking about the secret protocols here. We're just even right now talking about the non-aggression pact. How much did the non-aggression pact pave the way for the invasion of, of Poland, right? But that's, it's not just the Soviets who are concerned. The British and the French are sensitive about the Munich Pact of September 1938, which their countries had signed with Nazi Germany and Italy, in which they kind of turned their back on Czechoslovakia in an effort to avoid war. And so that comes up as well, right? How should that be talked about? What should the language be? How should those things be described? The big issue, though, in the indictment, and, and the thing that casts a shadow, I think, over the rest of the Nuremberg trials, is the question of Katyn, the Katyn massacre. The Katyn massacre of, of thousands of Polish prisoners of war or officers in the Katyn forest outside of Smolensk. Now, this is a crime that we now know that the Soviets had committed. It was a Soviet atrocity. But the Soviets tried to use Nuremberg and tried to use the indictment to blame this definitively on the Germans, on the German war criminals, on the Nazis. And so the Soviets insist on including Katyn in the indictment as a German war crime. And this becomes a, a huge thing. And so there's lots of questions about this too, about like who knew what at the time? Who knew who was guilty for what? And, and it's not even clear that all of the members of the Soviet delegation really understood that the Soviets were guilty of Katyn. And it's not clear fully at what point the members of the, the, the US and British and French delegations had all of the information either. But the British and the Americans and the French, they, they have their suspicions that maybe this wasn't something that the Nazis were guilty of. And so they try to convince the Soviets, they try to convince Roman Rudenko, the prosecutor who's involved in these negotiations, to not push to include Katyn in this. And Rudenko says, I, I have to include this in this. This is, you know, my hands are tied. If you don't want to include Katyn, then I'm going to have to go back to Moscow and talk to Stalin about this. And this is going to hold things up for a couple of weeks. And so the prosecutors, all of the countries, they, they eventually agree to let Katyn go into the indictment. It's listed as a German war crime. And and this, it, it just, it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And, and more information than comes out that it's probably the Soviets who are, in fact, we know that they were definitely, but this is at the time, that is probably them who are, in fact, responsible for it. And I think that just from, you know, kind of reading Jackson's, Jackson's um, materials, diaries, letters, my sense is this is, this is one of, probably one of Jackson's biggest regrets about what happened during the trials was letting, you know, Katyn get into the indictment because it just becomes a huge issue later.
Right, and you're talking about Justice Robert Jackson, who was the lead U.S. prosecutor. Yeah, Robert H. Jackson. And that, that's, that's a good segue to my next question for you, which you write that, that Justice Jackson wanted to, to bring American ideas about justice to post-war Europe. How did he use Nuremberg to further that cause? And why did he think that other countries like France and the Soviet Union were not in a great position to do that? No, that's a really interesting question. So, so again, all of the countries that are involved, the four allied powers, they want to use the Nuremberg trials to bring the Nazis to justice, but they have different ideas about what kind of a trial it should be, what things should look like. And as we talked about in terms of Soviet expectations, Stalin's expectations, the Soviets are expecting things to be more or less open and shut. They take Nazi guilt as a given. And we have to remember, too, the different perspectives of the countries coming in. The Soviets have lost 27 million people in the war. The Soviet Union was occupied, right? You know, France, France also um, was occupied. So, so these countries are coming from a, a somewhat different perspective. And so the Soviets take Nazi guilt as a given. And so they're expecting these trials to be pretty quick. They're not expecting the defendants to be able to to call a lot of witnesses, to be able to take the stand. They think it's going to be kind of open and shut. That's because of their experience at, at the, the show trials, right? I mean, they think that, at, you know, at those Moscow show trials in the 30s, everything was scripted and they didn't necessarily, you know, think that this would all be scripted, but they thought it would be go a lot quicker. Would you say that's accurate? Well, they think it's going to be quicker. And, and also, it, it's not just the Moscow trials. The Soviet Union had also held its own war crimes trials, including the Kharkov trial in December 1943. And those trials also were more or less open and shut. And I think it also has to do with, I think, all of the countries involved when they're initially talking about a trial, when everyone gets on board with the idea, no one is imagining that the trials are going to go on for almost a year. Right. They're imagining that things are going to just take a few months. And when Jackson comes in, Jackson's appointed as the U.S. chief prosecutor. And one of his goals from the start is to make sure that the trials reflect what he understands as, as, as rule of law, that the defendants are given a fair trial, that the defendants are seen as given a fair trial. He sees this as a way to help remake Europe. And to, to you know to, to to make a better world after the horrors of the Second World War. So he's coming in in part with that particular kind of a goal. So so this is again again you know he, he wants it to be clear of Jackson that that the defendants are you know innocent right until proven guilty. So again so these countries are coming at things with different experiences from the war. They're coming at things from different legal legal traditions as well. And so all of that affects the setup of things and what happens. And Jackson, in the course of starting to gather information about Nazi crimes and while he's traveling in Europe, um, while he has his, his assistants gathering evidence, it becomes more and more clear to him, again, that, that the Soviets and maybe the French, that maybe things are more complicated. He writes a letter to Truman before the start of the trial and he complains in this letter, right, that the French trials of collaborationists that were taking place and Soviet-run trials that were taking place at the time in Hungary, for example, that he writes that these were nothing that we would recognize as trials. And he wants it to be clear that Nuremberg should not be like that, that the Nuremberg trials should be recognized as something that the United States would be proud of, that the United States would recognize as a fair trial that followed rule of law. 
Jackson also thought that the Soviet Union and the French maybe were not all that qualified to present on certain charges. He also complains to President Truman that the Soviets and the French were, you know, he writes that, I'm going to quote him here, he says they were doing some of the very same things we are prosecuting the Germans for. And here he's talking in part about the Soviet annexation of the Baltic states and the French mistreatment of prisoners of war. And so he fights really hard for U.S., for a great deal of U.S. influence and to for the United States then to be presenting key evidence and key charges because he thinks that the U.S. is coming from a, a, a moral high ground here. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back 
and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Let's get into some of the evidence in the trial. Film plays a particularly important role at Nuremberg. Why? So I just want to say to begin with that there was an incredible amount of evidence, more evidence than anyone anticipated when they were first talking about having a trial. And that's part of why the issue of translation becomes such a big deal, because there are truckloads of evidence coming in, truckloads of documents that the Nazis had saved. So, so there's like a mountain of documentary evidence to begin with. But there's also a question of, there are all of these documents, but how can you really convey what had happened? How can you really convey what had happened? And so witnesses are brought in, but it's also decided to use film evidence. And part of why they have this film evidence is because there had been cameramen that had been embedded with troops, right, during the war. And so there were filmmakers on that had filmed the liberation of the concentration camps. The Americans and the British had film footage, and the Soviets had film footage as well. So the U.S. presents the, the first film. They present it pretty early on. The trial starts on November 20th. And on November 29th, the U.S. prosecution presents a film about the Nazi concentration camps in the, the zones that had been liberated by Western forces, places like um, Bergen-Gelsen and Buchenwald. And it's, it's, in, it's incredibly powerful for those in the courtroom to actually visualize, to, to see what this looked like. Because, again, there are some things that you just... You can't convey it in documents the same way that you can with images. And the Soviets are prompted by this to put together their own film footage. And they put together three films. Um, and I mentioned Roman Carmen, who is a Soviet filmmaker who was at Nuremberg. And Carmen was attached to a film studio back in Moscow that worked on these Soviet evidentiary films that are then used. There's a, a like a 30 minute film that's put together about the German destruction of culture that shows things like the shelling of palaces and museums in Leningrad. It shows you know, the burning down of churches. There's a 40 minute film about the destruction of Soviet cities that 
um, have like just like burned out blocks of buildings like in Minsk and Kursk and Smolensk and other urban areas. And then the most powerful, um, really the most horrifying Soviet film of all is a 45 minute film, film of German atrocities. And it's a film of German atrocities against civilians and prisoners of war. And it included footage that Soviet cameramen had shot in Auschwitz and Majdanek um, during the Red Army's liberation of the concentration camps. And just from reading even, you know, one of the things that, that I did as part of my research was read the, you know, the newspaper accounts of how people experienced like, what the reporters had to say the next day. One of the New York Times correspondents talking about the Soviet film footage, he talks about how it you know, had just been so disturbing that, you know, in the courtroom that even that these like war hardened army guards, how they were like gasping just from just while watching this. And the other point that he makes that I think is really important is that um, this New York Times correspondent says that this Soviet film put to rest any idea that the stories coming out of the East, right, out of, out of Russia and Eastern Europe about the German occupation had been overblown. And, and that's part of what we need to really keep in mind. Again, I mentioned the, the fact that the Soviets lost 27 million people. The Soviet Union, it was just you know, destroyed by the war. And again, this was something that was hard for Americans in particular, I think, to, to really understand what this what this meant and, and what this looked like. And that's part of why, you know, for the Soviets, um, showing these films was so important. So when when each side is considering which witnesses to bring, how did they how did they decide who to bring? I mean, there's so many people that had been witness to so many of these things that that we've been talking about. Right. So witnesses like film footage ends up being such an important part of, of the Nuremberg trials, such an important part of conveying like what had happened. And so I'll talk first about the prosecution. And so I should say as well that so the cases, remember, there's there's four counts, conspiracy, crimes against peace, war crimes and crimes against humanity. And they divide up the case from the start. And so the different countries of the prosecution, they present in terms. And the United States goes first, presenting on the conspiracy charge. Then the British present on crimes against peace. And the Soviets and the French, they both present on war crimes and crimes against humanity, with the French focusing on Western Europe and the Soviets focusing on Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And so in terms of the witnesses that are brought in, they're also bringing in witnesses to talk about those particular kinds of crimes and charges. And so the Americans, when they're talking about the conspiracy, they, they're mostly bringing in, not, not fully, but for the most part, German officers. So people like the SS general Otto Ollendorf and people like, like Lehusen as well. So they, they bring in these people in order to talk about German war plans, um, in order to talk about Hitler's plans for the final solution, right? So this view of, of what was going on kind of from behind the scenes. And, and those end up being incredibly important witnesses for the case. The Soviets and the French, when they bring in their witnesses on the crimes against humanity charge in particular, they're bringing in witness survivors. And that's the Soviets initially, by the way, they were on the fence about bringing in witnesses. Um, they were uncertain about whether to do so. They ultimately decide to do so. And it, it becomes really the most powerful part of their case. And so 
they bring in witnesses, the Soviets and the French, to talk about um, the concentration camps, to talk about the Einsatzgruppen. They bring in witnesses who can really bear witness and give meaning to the numbers. Because again, there's when you have these numbers of, of, of millions of people, right, what does that mean after a while? But when you have one person standing up in court and testifying on a very human, very individual level, you combine those two together. And, um, and, and that, I think that, that gave a more powerful sense of, of, of what exactly had happened in the occupied territories. I'll mention um, Avraham Sutskever, who is one of the witnesses that the Soviet prosecution brought in, whose testimony was just incredibly powerful. Sutskever was um, was a Yiddish poet. He and his wife, Friedka, had been interned in the ghetto in Vilna. They eventually, they escaped and joined the partisans, and the the Soviets actually staged a rescue operation to get them out, these Sutskever's poems had been smuggled out and he was really seen as just like kind of witness survivor. Anyway, at Nuremberg, he testifies about the Einsatzgruppen and just the, the, the murder, the annihilation of Jews of Vilna. But one of the most disturbing parts of his testimony as well for people who were there at the time, again, when, when they, people talked about it afterwards, he also talks about the murder of his newborn son. And, and I think it's things like that, that just, it, it really just left, it left an impact. So, so that's in terms of thinking about the witnesses for the prosecution. In, in terms of the, the witnesses for the defense, again, this is one of the things that took the Soviets by surprise. When the Soviets early on were pushing for a special international tribunal, when the Soviets were thinking about a trial, they were not imagining a trial in which the Nazi defendants, who they just saw as straight out guilty, in which they'd be able to call all kinds of witnesses to testify. You know, Goering has witnesses come to testify that that Goering was really a good person, right? Like high moral character and all of this. And so, so the defendants, the defense brings in all kinds of witnesses for the defendants, but the defendants are also allowed to take the stand in their own defense. And some of them go on, you know, for days and days and days. Um, and, and this too is just is something that the Soviets really had not anticipated happening. No one had really. I mean, just, just Goering's testimony in particular. Right. And I mean, the, the Soviets, as you described, were really bad at cross-examination. Why was that? Right. I also say that with Goering, like everyone was bad at cross-examination. I mean, he, Jackson, um, Justice Jackson, who was decent at cross-examination. Um, he had a really hard time with Gehring as well. Gehring just ran circles around him. Um, no one was really anticipating that. But the Soviets had a hard time with cross-examination really all the way through because, again, if we talked about earlier, Soviet expectations of what this would look like, who the Soviets sent to Nuremberg. The Soviets sent to Nuremberg a chief prosecutor and assistant prosecutors who had, you know, earned their political stripes in show trials, who were not expecting the defendants to really be offering a vigorous defense, and who were not used to the kind of thinking on your feet, right, that would happen in a Western-style trial. So that's so that's part of what the, the Soviets were up against. It's really interesting. One of the documents that I found in the Moscow archives was the kind of these sheets of papers that the Soviets had put together for the different defendants, where they set out 
the questions that the prosecutors should ask the defendants along with the anticipated answers, right? They thought that they knew like what the defendants would say. And so when the defendants denied the charges or, or just, you know, ran circles around them or like made counter accusations, the, the Soviet prosecutors just were uncertain what to do. And, um, and remember too, that the Soviet prosecution is answering to Moscow all the time. Like they're not supposed to be making decisions by themselves. And so imagine being a prosecutor in a trial where you have to be answering to Moscow. Moscow's told you the kinds of questions that you can ask. And then to have to think on your feet and not even have all the information. That's the other thing too. Not all of the Soviet prosecutors were given full information about the history of the war. So they're, they're at a disadvantage there as well. So the people present at, at trial, both the, the prosecutors and, and the audience and the, and the media, they were hearing about these terrible atrocities day in and day out. I'm curious, what, what effect did that have on them when they would, when they would go home at night? How, how did they cope, in other words? Yeah, though, that's, um, that's a really interesting question. I mean, right, it's, it's just, just, it was so, so hard on people. And one of the things that I, I paid a lot of attention to in my research was the letters that members of the Soviet delegation were writing from Nuremberg. And um, the Sievolod Vishnevsky's letters, they're really quite, they're incredible to read. They're in the, the, the Russian State Archive of Literature and Art. And in these letters, he recounts like this how how horrifying it was to to have to hear these just to listen to atrocities, stories of atrocities being told day after day after day in the courtroom. And you know what what did they do? They they went out at night, right? There was a lot of alcohol at Nuremberg, you know, alcohol for socializing, but also just alcohol to kind of to put the day behind you. And so all members of all the countries of the prosecution, you know, there was the whole nightlife at uh, the Grand Hotel where there would be um, just, you know, there was cabaret and there were acrobats and there was dancing and and there was a a bar scene as well where, um, you know, we know that the Soviet correspondents would go to, there was a particular bar that they would go to and they would drink with correspondents from other countries and play chess so, and, and again, and people are speaking in different languages and sometimes someone would translate a little bit, but, but they're all there sort of, you know, drinking together. So there is, there is a lot of alcohol and there was a lot of trying to, to leave the day behind, you know, court would get the, the trial would end at five o'clock for the day. And then, you know, people would, would go off and, and, and do different things, but, but there was, there was quite a nightlife. So something you, you touched on earlier was the, the Cotton Forest Massacre. What eventually came of that at trial when, while the Soviets had tried to sort of pin that on the Germans? Yeah, this is a huge deal through the entire trial. So 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 Katyn, right, it gets included in the indictment, much to the dismay of Robert H. Jackson and British Deputy Chief Prosecutor Sir David Maxwell Fife, who was also very much against this. It gets in there. And then the Soviets, they they present their case in February. They go last, right? So they're presenting on war crimes and crimes against humanity. And the Soviet prosecution presents then, you know, evidence of German guilt for the Katyn massacre. And we now know um, very clearly from research that's been done that much of the Soviet evidence was falsified. So the Soviets present this, this quote unquote evidence. And then the defense they asked to be allowed to bring in witnesses to challenge it. 
and this becomes a huge deal because there are, you know, there are four judges, one from each country of the prosecution. Yona Nikachenko is the Soviet judge, and and Nikachenko then is contesting this, trying to to make sure that the defense is not allowed to bring in witnesses to contest this evidence about Katyn. He gets outvoted. The Western judges, who are very concerned about charges of Victor's justice, who are very concerned about Katyn undermining the legitimacy of the trial, they allow the defense to bring in three witnesses. They also tell the Soviets that they can also bring in three witnesses. And so at the very end of things, in July of 1946, the defense calls three witnesses to present evidence. Um, now, the Soviets are not on trial for this crime. So it's not so much evidence of Soviet guilt. It's evidence of German innocence, right? So they present their three witnesses. The Soviets also present three witnesses. And when you read the newspaper reports about what happened, and I'm talking here about the Western newspaper reports, like the Times of London and the New York Times, it's kind of a wash. Like they're not really sure. They think like each side made convincing case. And some journalists think maybe one side was more convincing than the other, but it's not fully clear. And and so what happens is Katyn kind of disappears from the judgment. It is not included in the judgment as a Nazi crime. There's not um, there's not a lot of um, on the surface discussion of what happens. This is one of those things where maybe one day we'll have access to some kind of documents that tell us about the behind the scenes discussions that the judges had about it. But what we do know is that it disappeared. For the Soviets, this is a loss, right? Because this was something that Stalin had wanted to use Nuremberg to definitively blame Katyn on the Nazis. But I think that for the trial itself, it's it's a huge victory for, for justice, right? Because the fact that Katyn is not then included, um, the fact that the judges do allow the defense to bring in witnesses to contest this false evidence, I think it's really, I think it is really important for, for Nuremberg's legacy. Right. So as the, the judges of the tribunal reach a verdict, they had a pretty difficult time reaching a consensus on the first count of conspiracy. Why was that? Yeah. So the conspiracy charge is really interesting. So you remember like that this is the charge that's added last, right? It's not initially in, in the Nuremberg Charter. It's not part of Article 6. The Americans bring in the conspiracy charge for a number of reasons. Jackson really wants the conspiracy charge in there. In part, Jackson tries to use the conspiracy, and he actually does use it, for the Americans to have more control over the case. Because the Americans go first, and Jackson argues that all of the other crimes are connected to the conspiracy, that crimes against peace, war crimes, crimes against humanity. And so all the other countries of the prosecution are kind of shocked that Jackson and the American team, they, they go on and for, for much longer than anyone had anticipated, like weeks longer, because they end up presenting evidence of all of the charges. So that's part of how the conspiracy charge gets used right during the trial. The problem in the end is that the judges are not convinced of it. The French judge, Devab in, in particular, thinks that the way that the Americans have set out the conspiracy charge is just too broad because the prosecution argues that the conspiracy had begun with the creation of the Nazi party in 1920. And Devab says he thinks that's improbable that the Nazi party had from its very founding been a conspiracy seeking world domination, right? And so, you know, Devab then goes on and says that, um, 
Like, like, why are we even including this? Because it's it's questionable. Like, how can we prove that there there had been some giant world conspiracy from 1920? And he says, like, we don't even need this charge. There's been so much evidence of what he says, you know, actual crimes. Like, there's so much evidence that the Nazis have committed actual crimes, right? There, there's so much evidence of war crimes. There's so much evidence of crimes against humanity, so much evidence of crimes against peace. Like, why bother muddying things up with the conspiracy charge? But some of the other judges, including the Soviet judge, they pushed really hard to keep the conspiracy in. And the compromise is reached. So the conspiracy is kept in, but it's narrowed. And so it's not dated back to 1920. Instead, it's dated to November 5th, 1937. Do you know why November 5th, 1937? Why is that? Hossback Conference. Do you know what happened at the Hossback Conference? I do not. That is when Hitler revealed to his generals his plans to invade neighboring countries. And so they say that, okay, that's when there's a clear conspiracy, November 5th, 1937. And they also narrow the conspiracy charge then to the planning and waging of aggressive war, to crimes against peace. So in the end, the judgment will only concern itself with conspiracy insofar as the conspiracy had led to the violent assault on the sovereignty of other states. And so, so yeah, so conspiracy, it stays in there, but it's narrowed and it's narrowed considerably. And there's, there's another reason though, why this then becomes a really big deal. And that has to do with crimes against humanity. Because another reason that Jackson had wanted to include conspiracy in there was because, again, he's arguing from the start that conspiracy has to do with all of the other crimes. And so it's a way of holding the Nazis accountable for crimes against humanity within Germany. Because the way that the crimes against humanity was narrowed in the Nuremberg Charter, it was that had been narrowed to crimes against humanity committed in connection with the war. And so Part of what happens then with the narrowing of the conspiracy charge in the judgment is that also means the narrowing of crimes against humanity also then in connection with the planning and waging of war. So crimes that Germany had committed atrocities against Jews in Germany before the start of the war, much of that does not then get prosecuted or does not, it's not, it's not part of the judgment, I should say. So by the end of of Nuremberg, you write that the the trials had had become a laboratory for the articulation and development of a new language about human rights. How should we think about the legacy of the language that was developed there through the Cold War and even to today? Right. So when, when I talk about this laboratory for the articulation and development of a new language of human rights, I'm talking in part of what later becomes known as the Nuremberg Principles. And those are these ideas um, that include crimes against peace and crimes against humanity. Um, and we're also talking about the term genocide, which also gets introduced at the Nuremberg trials. And so in the wake of Nuremberg, there's a big international discussion about these Nuremberg principles and about trying to make them into permanent international law, right? But, you know, like, can you guess, like, what is what is the concern here? Like, why not? Like, what is the question here? Why not do it? Right. The question is state sovereignty. And so the Nuremberg trials themselves, they had been it had been limited to European access crimes, 
only the Nazis were on trial. So in the end, like they could disprove like German responsibility for Katyn, but there, Nuremberg was not a place to prove Soviet responsibility for it, right? The Soviets were not on trial. American, British, French, right? They were not on trial for any war crimes that they had committed either, right? So it's just European Axis powers. And so then there's a question of, well, if you if you try to expand the Nuremberg principles, you know, what will happen? And, and there was, not surprisingly, a lot of resistance on the part of a number of states um, because of questions of state sovereignty. And so things ultimately fall apart and they fall apart as well because this language of crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, it all also becomes, um, I guess we could say weaponized really during the Cold War, especially with the United States and the Soviet Union accusing each other of committing crimes against humanity and crimes against peace. And so it, I talk about it as them becoming kind of part of a soundtrack of the Cold War as well. Now, the end of the Cold War does eventually see the United Nations adopt a draft code of, of crimes against the peace and security of mankind, that's what it's called, which includes crimes against peace and crimes against humanity. And that's in 1996. So all the way in 1996, this is finally adopted. And then we have, of course, the, the creation of the International Criminal Court, right, in 1998, and the Nuremberg Principles, they, they've, of course, they've served as an important foundation for international criminal tribunals for Rwanda, Yugoslavia, other post-conflict states. But there's still, like, as we know, like there are many states, including the United States and Russia, that are, are still like not comfortable, like just to put it mildly, with those kinds of institutions and with signing on to all of this because of concerns about how this will play out politically. So I don't know. At the end of the day, right, it, it's hard to say. Um, I think Nuremberg was incredibly successful for what it achieved in the moment at the time, like what, what was possible. I think one of the biggest successes of Nuremberg was putting together, right, a comprehensive record of what had happened during the Second World War. I think it's also, I think that getting the language of crimes against peace and crimes against humanity and genocide getting that into international discourse was really important as well. And I think even where um, there are these stalled efforts at the international level among institutions to, to make this into a, some kind of law with teeth, right? That language of Nuremberg, I think it at the time and to this day, I think it, it inspired you know dissidents, protesters, civil rights organizations. Right, they have this language to put forward claims for human rights. They have this language has a moral power, but you know with the, the story is not over yet, right? Um, maybe at some point in the near future, to to think really optimistically, although who knows? You know, maybe we will reach a moment where there is real political will to create an international law that goes beyond state sovereignty and that all states will sign on to. But really, you know, who, who knows about that? Maybe that's just a pipe dream. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me here um, today, Bryce. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.